Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm going to be really quick up the top here. Today's guest, Sarah Millican, is one of my favourite comedians in the world and just one of the most delightful people uh, that I know in the comedy industry and such an absolute pleasure to sit down with her when she was touring Australia and have this chat. It's, it's one of my favourite episodes. I just loved it. I just had so much fun recording it with her and uh, we all met to only have 45 minutes. We ended up doing a lot more than that and... Uh, Anyway, it's 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 really fun, and I hope you find it really fun too. And if you like Sarah, uh, please check out all her work. Uh, if you uh, just discovering Sarah through this podcast, then uh, please uh, do a deep dive and find all her stuff. It is all worth checking out. And uh, she is always well. She's not always touring, as we talk about on this podcast. But if she is touring and you have an opportunity to see her anywhere in the world, then please go and check out Sarah Millican. Speaking of touring, my Hobart show is sold out. Uh, thank you to everyone who's coming along to that. I am terrified. It is next Friday night and uh, it's the first time I'll have a run of, uh, you know, most of the material that potentially can be in the show. So uh, please, if you're coming in Hobart, be kind. Um, hopefully it's going to be great and wonderful and exciting. But uh, I'm at that point where we're now a week and a half out where I just feel sick at all possible waking moments. So uh, looking forward to doing the first one and uh, yeah, getting that done and, and seeing, you know, what, what shape the show is taking. And then from the 27th of March, I'm at the Melbourne International comedy festival 20 shows uh it is already a third sold out which is just amazing uh thank you very much so if you do want to come and see me do my brand new show then um come and see it at the melbourne international comedy festival buy a ticket uh first couple of nights are cheaper previews uh so if you want to come and see you know me run some stuff in and see a few jokes that probably won't make it until the end of the comedy festival then come early or if you're a conservative person who's like i want to make sure that he's done it a whole bunch of times uh, first before I say it, you know, book for the last week, but um, the last week always sells out, obviously. So if you do want to come in the last week, hedge your bets, uh, then um, get in early, buy a ticket for the last week, the last weekend. Anyway, whatever, like make your own choices. Um, I, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash tofop, which is uh, how we pay uh, all the people who help me put on this podcast and make it happen uh, every week. Thank you for listening. Uh, check out some uh, great recent episodes. Um, I always recommend, you, even if you don't know the person, um, you know, do a deep dive, uh, check them out, you know, have a listen to some people that you don't know about and hear their stories as well. And you may indeed become a fan or, you know, learn about someone new and interesting. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks to all the mics that helped me put on this podcast and everybody else involved. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, very excited that we could squeeze this in. We are in at my uh, day job, my uh, the radio show place of work, but we're not in a radio studio. We're in some boardroom that uh, <laughs> does not seem to have air conditioning in any way. I noticed when I shut the door for sound purposes <laughs> that I was like, this may well be a Bikram podcast that we are about to embark upon. But I was very excited that um, my guest today could come on the podcast. It's been a while since we've had an opportunity to have a catch up and in fact we've never had an opportunity to sit down and speak for an hour so the podcast starts like this I should stop talking I should invite you into it so then we can talk together <laughs> yeah. uh, it starts like this who are you uh, I am Sarah Millican I am a comedian uh, a writer um, I co-founded a podcast that I'm very proud of and I am a parent of a cat and a dog <laughs> 
We started this podcast by exchanging <laughs> pet photos <laughs> on really the phones. Did. And I didn't even show you a picture of my cat because he's a bit of an asshole. Oh, really? So, yeah, but he's beautiful. And I don't like that people will go, oh, he's so lovely. And you think, he's not. He's a bit of a dick. Tell me this. is <laughs> What's his name? He's called Brody. He's called Chief Brody. So they're all. So he's named after the police chief in Jaws. Mm. And he's the only one we've had from Tiny Tiny. So he's a kitten. He was a kitten. He's five now. So he's big ginger buns. And then we just recently lost one of our cats uh, and she was a rescue and the dog is a rescue. So the the only one that's ever been a bit of a dick is the one that we had. So we, we are to blame because we raised him from nothing. <laughs> so so you're in a nature versus nurture sense, that yeah. was very much the nurturing. We terrible parents. Yeah. Oh no, the homeless cat that had gone through trauma, yeah, had to be rescued. Fine. Yeah. Worked it the, out himself. The dog that was in the kennels for a year because his owner was ill and didn't know when he was coming up, he's fine. Yeah. No bother with him at yeah, all. Yeah, dealt with loss and being in prison. <laughs> Turned out fine. The one we raised from a baby. Terrible. <laughs> Just awful, awful thing. Because Gary always says, my husband always says, if we ever had kids, judging on how we treat the pets, they'd be fattening in prison. Because <laughs> they can eat whatever they like, they can do whatever they like. <laughs> I mean... I think that is a very interesting thing to say because, you know, people do say, oh, you get the, the pets as practice for being a parent. And certainly if I had kids and treated them the way, as in like let them get away with, yeah. I would have the most indulged. Like oh, the, yeah. I mean, I've they just got to the point people. where I'm like, okay, sometimes they're just going to shit in my office. <laughs> I know, I know she's seven, but... Yeah, we just started to get washable rugs. Yeah. Just rugs that'll go in the washing machine <laughs> rather than train the animals to not shit in the house. Just do that. Just get washable rugs. You know what? Maybe we'll just buy cheaper couches <laughs> and go through them more often. Exactly. Let's just not buy a good one. Let's buy oh, disposable oh, We've ones. got the corner of one sofa that's scratched mm. to fuck. And I just think... Well, if people come in and judge the sofa, then I don't like those people. So I, because I just let the animals scratch the sofa. I don't care because yeah. they, they're members of the family. If that makes them happy, then that's what we'll do. Oh, it was one of those things where early on um, we, we, we had moved and so we did buy a new couch. Nice. And there was like, I'm going to say there was at least, I reckon six weeks maybe, where we were like, you know what? The dogs can't come on the couch. The do- <laughs> like, this is what we're going to do. This is going to be a like... Six weeks is a long time. You did really well, though. I mean, I don't think the dogs were there the whole time. <laughs> but I'm, I'm counting all six weeks regardless. I don't understand why people say the dog's not allowed on the bed or the dog's not allowed upstairs or our dog sleeps between us Yes. <laughs> on the bed. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Snuggles. No. Yeah, we have two dogs and a cat in oh. bed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think they need to make bigger beds. Yeah, exactly. That's what We've I We've got a buy. super king size. Yeah. Well, I want bigger than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, with extra little pillows at the top for a tiny furry head to go on. Yeah. We'd, oh. we'd get an extra cat, but we can't fit it in the bed. <laughs> <laughs> One of you would have to lose weight. <laughs> have you have always space. been a, pap, a pet person? Yeah, always. So you grew up with pets in the yeah. household? Yeah, but all little pets. So, like, budgies and hamsters and rabbits, nothing with too much of a life expectancy. Mm. And then we had a dog very briefly, but it was really vicious. So it had to get put down, unfortunately, but I had it for, like, six weeks. And then instead of my mum and dad saying, let's get you a better dog, they just never mentioned it ever again. (laughs) So I I got my second dog, which I'm really pleased to say I've had for longer than six weeks, (laughs) three years ago. I can keep a dog alive and they're not all really vicious. Can I ask, do you remember the first time that a pet died? Do you have a memory of like, 
I'm always um, very interested in because I grew up on a farm, yeah. so oh, I was very oh, where aware. Oh, all the pets are sent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that wow. farm. We yeah. actually grew up on that farm. <laughs> you must have had loads of cats. I think some oh, of my pets have been there. <laughs> constantly arriving. It was a real joy. No, I mean, I used to do stand up about that because the the truth is that like the the myth of that when I went to the city, the idea that like. You know, it, cats and dogs and stuff got sent to this farm where they got to run free. <laughs> Firstly, cats and dogs do not get to run free on a farm. Do they not? No. They Why? Have to wor- well, dogs have to work on a oh, farm. Oh, no, that's so cats mean. Are useless. And secondly, there's no... Cats are useless. <laughs> well, I mean, you know... But dogs have, like, to clock in and clock out. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Little uniform. Yeah. I mean, they don't need the uniform, but it's but adorable like it. to dress yeah. them. <laughs> Yeah, if you put them in the oh. uniform from when they're young, they'll get used to it. <laughs> um, oh. So we were on the farm. So yeah. you have an awareness of death is what I was getting to, which is like you have a... It sounds when like a dark childhood. Yeah. We always had an awareness of death. <laughs> um, but you do, because animals die all the time. Yeah. Well, not all the time. I don't want to in- imply yeah. that my dad was running some sort of... <laughs> every hour does some animal die. Oh, the, the gong went, yeah. oh, another animal's dead. <laughs> my husband used to... his. Mam had kind of livestock. I think she lived on like a council estate, but she still had like goats and stuff. And they knew, he thought it was very respectful to know who you were eating. So you'd name them. And and he thinks that's respectful. I just think that's, I think that would make me cry so much if I was eating a pet. Like we went through the miners strike where we had no money and we had a rabbit. And I was really nervous that one day that rabbit was going to be, you know, gone to your farm (laughs) and was going to be, oh, a lovely pie. And they never did that, thankfully, because it was a pet, obviously. But I think, yeah, I've always had pets. And I think that probably the, my grander had canaries, canary singular called cheeky that he had for 30 years but it was it looked different sometimes (laughs) (laughs) so i think that was the first awareness sometimes it's got a brown head (laughs) sometimes it hasn't cheeky just likes changing up cheeky's look (laughs) exactly cheeky is very fashion conscious um but cheeky would die and then be a new but always had the same name which i don't know if i like or not makes me a bit sad well, I, I guess it would only be really sad if he did the same thing with wives. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, you're Sarah now. <laughs> Actually, I, d- I have had a couple of friends who've had multiple girlfriends with the same name, and that's weird as well. But that's maybe for a different podcast. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I think that was probably the first awareness. And obviously, a lot of the little pets I had would only last like a couple of years because mm. that was their life expectancy. I wasn't killing them. No. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think I was quite aware of it. And I was uh, certainly aware... I realised only recently that my dad, my mum and dad had told my sister when her dog died that it had gone to live on a farm because uh, the farmer's wife had died and he was lonely. They like added a bit on to the, to the story. So they took the basic story and they added a bit on. And I was told my dog had been put down. And I think that's what happens when you're the younger, younger child. You don't get all the fanciness, do you? No. So my sister's photographs, as is classic, are all in an album and with little funny captions underneath and mine are in a carrier bag. Yeah, he's <laughs> three photos of you and the dog's dead. <laughs> And the Happy birthday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dog's also in the carrier bag. <laughs> <laughs> the photos of you are stuck to the bottom of the dog's corpse. We love you, but in a different way to your sisters. <laughs> yeah, just not as much. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay, this is how the podcast works. Um, it, it, I ask if you have a philosophy yeah. to something and then we just get back to gas bagging about stuff. But. Uh, do you have one? Do you have a life philosophy of some kind, whether it be a work philosophy or a life love? I think um, not love. I, oh, no, it's, 
it's always about work for me. Mm. And I think my philosophy is largely about working really hard. I think about taking opportunities, but usually just about working really hard and not letting sort of things that crop up and sort of bumps in the road deter you, just power ahead. And I've always, and I think it comes from my dad because my dad, uh, whenever we'd bump into somebody, so when he left work, when the, the pit closed, he was an electrical engineer, and he'd bump into people in the street and he'd chat away to them. And as they walked away, he turned around and he'd go, he was lazy, he was born idle. And not always, but that was the worst thing you could be to my dad, was lazy. And I think that, in so the, we used to get, um, when you got your school reports, you'd get a, a grade for effort and a grade for, a grade for attainment. And my mum and dad were never interested in the attainment. Effort was always the thing. So if you got A for effort and E for attainment, that's still all right. You're still good. You mm. still get, you know, well done's. It was always about how much work you put in and how much effort you put in. And I think also you could probably transfer that onto relationships and th that sort of thing as well, if the kind of working hard at something rather than just kind of being in the middle of a relationship and letting it kind of run its course. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's always been about, because I, I don't really like quotes, you know, kind of quotes that are, I'm not really the sort of person who buys cards with quotes on, but there's a lovely quote. I actually screen grabbed it so I could tell you it, uh, which is attributed to uh, Goethe, but it wasn't him apparently, which is, uh, I really like this, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power and magic in it. And I hate quotes, but that's the only one I like. And I that's the sort of thing I'd have on a wall to kind of inspire me. I also, oh, this is terrible. Oh my God. I used to have a framed thing on the wall that said, what have you done today to make you a better comedian? And on the other side, it said, just work harder. And I remember putting it in my spare room when I moved things around. And I had a friend stay in my spare room. And she said she thought it was a dig at her. And I said, no, it's just because it was like leaning against a wall. And she thought I was saying, like, if you worked harder, you could afford a hotel. Yeah. Well, you also had a whole range of post-it notes around the room. Move out soon. Yeah. Get your You're own not spies. welcome. You're a grown adult. <laughs> <laughs> windy <laughs> I think it's always about it's always about hard work that's my mm. that's my main focal point to the point to the detriment I think of my personality sometimes okay this, well this is a great area and I'm glad that you went there because I'd love to talk to you about it because yeah. I think that uh, I if I am known for something is that like I am a hard worker I think that like I and I you know don't say that with any particular you know false modesty or anything I think mm. that people like you know think that I'm a hard worker and part of the reason is that I've never felt like I was the, the, the you know I've been surrounded by wonderfully talented you know artistic hilarious naturally gifted people mm. naturally gifted people who then had to work to you know fulfill yeah. Their the artistic gifts, but I, you know, I can't do voices. I don't have a particularly pleasant voice to listen to. You know, I barely complete sentences. I um and ah and fucking <laughs> swear and you know all these sort of things. Yeah. And so I, I've often just gone. Well, at least I'm going to know that I'm going to work at least as, as hard or harder than everybody else. So yeah. I want to firstly talk about that, and then we we'll take a journey yeah. through that. I think it's something we, you are allowed to be well, proud of. You know, when so if you say. I'm really good at my job. I, mean, I that, just saying it makes me feel really uncomfortable because mm. we're not allowed to say that because it's you, no. you. You other people have to say it, whether it's by laughing at your show or by you progress or just by other people saying, "Oh, she's really good." Or, and I feel so uncomfortable, but I can say I work really hard, 
and I can be proud of that. And I don't think people have a problem with it, you saying that you work really hard. I think that there is part of the working really hard that I'd like to get to after we talk about it, which can be perhaps destructive. Or, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a massive cult. workaholic. Oh, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah. I don't want to start there. I want to start with <laughs> okay, the fun stuff the fun and, and work our way to that. So <laughs> have you always been a hard worker when it came to comedy? When you Like, I want to talk about comedy yeah. at the start. When you started doing stand-up, you were, you were late, later on. Yeah, 29. So, 29. So, I mean, it's not, you know, you weren't a 15, 16-year-old like Daniel Sloss or Ross Noble or someone, Eddie Murphy. No. But 29's not, you know, ancient No, but it's very much a, had, a, had, had jobs, had yeah. a career, and then something changes and then you decide to try. It's not something I thought about from when I was a teenager and always wanted to do and never had the bottle. It was pretty much as soon as I decided I, had, I wanted to do it, I had the bottle. So it was very much a thing I never thought, I didn't even really think it was a job. I think I knew that stand-ups were on the telly and I'd seen them do tour shows off the back of that, including the very sad uh, loss of uh, Jeremy Hardy. He was one of the three comics I saw before I started doing stand-up. But uh, I don't think I knew that comedy clubs existed, even at 29. Like that you could go in a little underground room and see amazing comics just make audiences howl. I didn't even know that existed. And my first gig was the first gig I ever went to, was also the first gig, gig I, was, I was ever on at. And at the time, it was very much off the back of my... So I got divorced and I had these kind of moments of feeling I could do anything. And on one of those moments, I signed up to a workshop for people who'd written but never performed. And I went along and I, and I performed that evening at a sort of a, a little kind of gathering. And I read a monologue that I'd written about my divorce, which was at times quite sad and at times quite funny. And the audience laughed and I felt like, tick, I've done it. That's it. This is not a job. This is not a job for anyone. But I look at a thing I did that I never thought I could do. And then six months go by and I contacted the woman who'd ran the workshop, Kate Fox. And I said, I think I want to try and stand up. And she said, I know, <laughs> like she'd waited six months. <laughs> like she knew that what I should be doing and what I kind of was doing, but I hadn't memorized it was stand up. So she then gave me a little bit one on one advice and I, she booked me my first gig. And then I did about five or six gigs from the September to the December. And then in the January I decided this is the thing I want to do. And I realized it was a job then and that I was sort of starting to show signs of maybe being all right at it. And I then focused and almost entirely on that. I had a job and I had, you know, friendships and things, but mostly all I did was that. Just worked really hard. And I had a, a rule where um, I always tried to have 50 gigs in my diary. And often they were open spots and unpaid things. And, you know, but so if I did three gigs that week, I had to book three gigs that week so that there was always 50 gigs in my diary. Because I never wanted to get to that point where I looked at my diary and it was empty. Like some, sometimes, you know, life you know gets you carried away and you forget so I, I booked three gigs a week if however many gigs I did that week I booked that in my diary and it was easy to do because there was an abundance of gigs there wasn't as many comics and also mostly I was doing it for free so they anybody will have you if you did it for free so it wasn't like I was I wasn't like saying to people you need to pay me I was just saying can I get on stage I need this stage time in order to because I very much saw it as a a trade it's right. a something you this is the distinction isn't that people say it's a trade rather than art because the you just work and work and work and work and work and not everybody can do it obviously but the harder you work the better you are the quicker I guess um and it's something you need to learn how to do um so yeah so that so I had loads of little tricks of things like this when I eventually passed my diary across to my agent I signed with an agent about a year later and when I eventually signed uh, passed it across there was oh about 15 rules of how to run my diary uh, that I had 
you know instilled in myself and just things like you know if it's for free but it's really far but it's also somewhere where I could progress then it's worth putting in but if it's for free and they don't have anything else for me if it's just an open spot gig or whatever then that's no good and you know so I had all these little rules that I that I sort of uh, how applied. I mean obviously the ones about the free shows probably don't work work as much anymore but do, do any of those rules still remain um I don't know I guess so I guess because things don't really change just the you know, you get paid, obviously you get paid for the gigs now, but it's just more people. But I still have a lot of rules. I think maybe the rules are different now, but I still have a lot. When I book a tour, there's a lot of rules. And every I try every tour to be easier than the last one in terms of logistics because uh, so la- oh, this tour I did five nights a week for a year and it's just exhausting and then <laughs> and it's not I'm well away I'm, it's not the same as being a nurse I understand where my place is, is in how how much I'm allowed to complain about being tired and it's nowhere near all of those people but I do feel like uh because sometimes we do a matinee which would make it six shows and then sometimes we'd add an extra show and so that'd be seven shows over five days and so then I, I thought right next to her I'm going to do four day weeks I'm going to do four day weeks for longer because I love doing it so it doesn't matter that it's longer I don't have any other plans apart from just continuing to tour so because I've, I've I'm kind of lucky in that I've tried loads of different things and I've come back to the thing that I love, which is stand-up. And I just kind of want to do that loads. I don't have any interest in all of the other things that are available potentially to me or could be available to me because I just really like being in charge. <laughs> well, tell <laughs> me, though. Massive control freak. I, I, so how long is your set when you're doing your show on the road? Uh, about an hour and 25. Yeah, so it's a decent amount of time. Like, hmm. I mean, I don't think that people quite understand what it takes out of you physically hmm. to... The, the, the bigger the room gets, in some ways, the more fun it is, of course, yeah. right? It can be. But there's also an extra weight on your shoulders. Yeah. Like keeping a 1,000 people or 2,000 people or 3,000 people, you know, together yeah, yes. in the moment. Yeah. You, you are like the substitute teacher in that you have to have their, you know, control at yes. all times. Attention because as soon yeah. as somebody gets distracted, you can start losing the whole room. Yeah. So doing that night after night, if you're touring night after night, mm. I think early on there's something, like we think there's something heroic in doing terrible schedules and pushing ourselves to the brink yeah. of stuff. But we were having a chat <laughs> beforehand and you were saying, oh, this has been a nice tour because you've been able to yeah. go to brunch. and, But that... That should be how it is. Like yeah, the most important think... thing you're doing in your day, you've got like a thousand, tonight you're at Hamer Hall. There's yeah. 2,000 people who've paid like $100 plus babysitter, plus parking, plus yeah. whatever. This is probably their night of the week or their night of the month or yeah. their night of the year maybe that they're going out to mm. do something. They would want the person who's doing it to have kind of relaxed and be at their best on that day. Yeah, I don't know. No, okay, I don't think me. they good. want me to have relaxed. I think they want me to be good. And I don't yeah. know if relaxing is always what makes me good. Okay, good. I think T- focus. Talk me through that. So I think this is, we were talking before we started recording about how I often write for the next show while I'm on tour. So, and it's not like I'm, si- I'm not sitting down at a laptop and writing. If I say a funny thing or I think a funny thought, I write it in my notebook or I send myself a message or whatever. And then, but that can't go in that show. So that has to go in the next show. And the reason for that, one, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons is when the tour goes on sale, I like to have it half written. And my tour goes on sale a year in advance of the first shows because I think they shouldn't be doing more preparation than I am. So they shouldn't have gone, you know what, we could go to that one in Cardiff or we could go to that one in London. We could have a weekend of it. Sandra will take the kids 
I'll try and get an early finish so we can go and have a dinner. They shouldn't be doing that. Well, I'm like, I don't know what it's about. <laughs> no. So I have to have half written it before it goes on sale. And I, that's I, lo- how I, I love that because there's nothing that I hate more than like on the last night of a long tour coming up with some great joke that goes no. in the show. And then I'm like, oh, now I have to ring everybody. I have to get their details. <laughs> From Ticketmaster, I have to send them an email and say, look, do you remember that bit when I was talking about the dogs and the farm? What if I said this at the end? This would have been heaps better, right? But is it worth seeing, yeah, I guess it has, if it's a topper, but if it's an, a genuinely new idea, that obviously goes in the next show. You just don't put it in. But I record the DVD normally quite early in the tour. This time we did it quite late, which is good because I'd found all my twiddly bits, all the extra bits and all the extra lines. But then you do come up with lines after that, like the, sometimes the day after the DVD record, because the DVD records are very stressful and you're not, you're just seeing the words in the order that they're supposed to and trying to enunciate and have perfect diction and all these things. And the day after when you're all like carefree and like, hey, it's just an audience. This is a piece of piss. And that's when you come out with like extra gold and you're like, no, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> DVD commentary, I'd imagine. <laughs> well, yeah, or just an extra yeah. of just like, when you get to uh, one hour 15, pause it and put this bit on. Yeah, well, that's what I, I mean, like, not a commentary of the entire show. No. Just, just literally dropping in bits occasionally when you've thought of something better. <laughs> that's a great idea. Um, I, I, it's interesting because I do the yearly cycle here. So yeah. every year I write a different show for the, the festival. And what that means is they often end up being reactions to the previous show. Right. So it's oh. much harder. So if I do a really personal show, I did my last show was being, I got um, arrested uh, no, it was. Uh, oh. I was not. Uh, it was a, a misunderstanding, and okay. I was not charged or anything. In fact, it was not my fault at all. So I wrote a whole show about it because that was like gold a good to a comic, right, isn't it? Exactly right. <laughs> it turned out to be really so good. jealous. I wish but, I could get arrested. <laughs> oh, well, don't get me wrong. Coming into this year, I was thinking maybe I should get arrested again. <laughs> that one went really well. But what it ends up being is normally if I've talked about myself for a year, yeah. I end up wanting to talk about the world for a year. And oh, then if I talk about the world for a year, then I'm kind of like, mm, I want to talk about me again for a year. So because mine are slightly different. I do super personal and then a bit more where it's, they're always personal. It's always about me. I never have the years of thinking about the world. Oh, by care. the way, when I say about the world, I mean <laughs> you what in the I world. think about the world. Yeah. <laughs> You're placing it. Yeah. But I, sometimes I find, I've, I've got a bit that's so personal that I find it exhausting and and also if if you're I hate reviews I hate critics if I get reviewed and it's just like a funny 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 show and they go ah it wasn't very funny or whatever they say that's all right but it, I don't really care but if they it's quite it, it takes it so much more of a punch to the gut if they say oh it was rubbish and you've like broken your heart on stage and I said don't get me wrong I'm still being funny throughout I don't believe in shows that are a talk (laughs) you know a TED talk that is labeled as comedy I don't do that but if I've got a show where I feel very vulnerable every night I find that so much more exhausting because you've and I don't cry on stage right there but you still have to go to that place that isn't very pleasant uh, so then sometimes my reaction off the back of that will be a show that is just jokes so that I just tell jokes about myself and about and it's still very personal but maybe it doesn't go quite as deep as the last one to give myself a little bit of time of, of an easier ride of it I suppose yeah when you are someone like myself who you know prides themselves on working hard I think that sometimes much like that little tooth that you know you shouldn't touch that you continue to touch mm. I find myself leaning into hard work porn and what I mean by that <laughs> is that I will read about other comedians porn. who work hard. <laughs> okay. No, 
I, I will read about read, other comedians read who work hard. Porn is so, <laughs> yeah, I don't like to watch porn, pointless. but I love just to read, read porn. <laughs> is this got a book? Does this come out in a book? There's sometimes women's. So there's a, a couple of sites that are porn for women, mm. and often it's a story. And I still think, no, I still want to see a cock. Yeah. Come on, guys, <laughs> don't describe a cock to me. I think there's just somewhere <laughs> in between. I like the. Like the last time that I looked up pornography, like it had all just got so, like I was like, you know, sometimes where the prevailing mood, like much like going to the trends, mo- it's trends, right? Much yeah. like going to the movies, and you're like, oh well, why is everybody into this? Like, and you just don't quite understand, <laughs> and it's become that with porn now. Like I just looked and I was like, does everyone want to fuck their sister or their dad <laughs> or they're like, like there seems to be way too much stuff that's around. You know, my stepdad and my like. You wonder where it's going to end because right. it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and you wonder where you know it's. Yeah, I find it very. But I just I think I don't want to read a book mm. based <laughs> on, on but based on popular porn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who were the two? Who were the two girls? Where did they get that cup? I've got a lot of questions <laughs> after this video. <laughs> I, so you, did you, I oh, took so the piss out of that, sorry. Gonna, no. You were saying you like to read about other comics, but working yes. hard. and then think that I, and then use that as sort of like inspiration that I'm not working hard enough. Yeah. So that was what I was going to say is the unhealthy bit of it. The bit where I keep touching my tooth is like, anytime there's an article about Seinfeld, you know, going to his <laughs> office and you know, looking out the window and seeing the workers and going, they treat it like a job. Why can't I treat it like a job? And you are quite legendary in this. Am I? Well, because you do an incredible amount of trial shows before you start yeah. doing a tour. So talk us through that process. Like how do you actually put a show together? So it's changed, I suppose, because now I'm in a position where I can put a a, a room I can sell a room like a 50 seater wherever I like whenever I like and get and sell it for you know five pound or whatever and they come and they see either me do an hour and a half or other comics so I think in the past when I had to scrabble for previews that wasn't uh, as easy but I still I had a kind of a golden rule of I did 28 previews before the Edinburgh Fringe which is longer than the Edinburgh Fringe <laughs> but I used to do so many different kinds of rooms and there's um the odd room that was quite hard I would always do because I thought well that's it's sort of altitude training because you need to be able to go to Edinburgh and have the hard times when there's five people in or when it's raining and they're all drenched and in a bad mood or you've just got a bad review and you have to go on stage and so I, I kind of force myself to not just do the cheery rooms it's that it's is it Seinfeld I think who said that you you experiment in easy rooms and you edit in hard rooms. I think it's, that might be a paraphrase of that. But um, So I do, I run a new material gig and I do, there's a few around and about where I live and I'll do sort of 10 minutes here and there and I find those much less pressured and I run them and I put on, like there'll be another five comics or six comics on all doing 12 to 15 minutes of new material and we charge a fiver on the door. So you can't do, you can't go to the cinema for five pounds. You know, it's, it's all, and a lot of, the audience are repeat customers so that's good for me because it means I have to do different stuff every time I can't just keep doing the same 10 minutes of new and calling it new and it's not really new so I do that quite regularly I didn't do as much on this tour because I found this tour quite exhausting which I think is just because I'm getting old I'm 43 I think I'm just knackered so I didn't do as much on this tour but I've started back up again I'll do a few more this year and then I'm having a bit of time off after I get back from uh, from the international dates because I've got Europe and then Canada after this. So after I get back from those, bit of time off and then start writing with a vengeance. And that's when I'll do the monthly new material gigs. And then I do uh, previews when I do the full sort of hour and a half. And to the point where when it gets when it starts to get good 
that's when I start experimenting a bit more because then you can you can go well they know they're going to get their five pounds or their, their eight pounds worth whatever but I need to then dig about a little bit more because I don't ever dig about in a 2000 seater I'm not the sort of person who's like I've, I thought of a new thing today I'm just going to shove it in because I just find it too scary and a little bit disrespectful if I've tried it one place and it works I might shove it in but never the first time on stage be- uh, in front of all those people because again the same thing is that they spent money they've booked restaurants and hotels and things for me to be like I'm going to try a new thing it's just arrogant and what they get is the good stuff the good stuff that's been honed and tweaked and twiddled and and that's kind of my favorite process I love when you find extra jokes and you or you unpack something and go oh actually this is a bigger bit than I thought it was or when you're trying to get and I'm not the sort of person who tries to get messages across without doing jokes but I'll try and sneak things under the radar like I might at one point I asked I got oh god years ago I asked the audience to um to cheer if they had pubic hair and cheer if they didn't so that the women in the room could hear the tiny minority of women that don't have pubic hair and all the millions of women that do and 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 then there would be jokes about that but it was purposeful so that women went oh god because because if you're led to believe that the magazines are true and the telly is true and porn is true and all of these things that you think oh well i'm really weird because i've got pubic hair when really you're not you're the majority and it's really nice to hear two thousand people the majority of them cheering for one side or the other. And also that only comes because it's a fact. You can't fudge that. Right. Unless it's just my fans are particularly hairy. Who knows? Well, I mean, but, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a reasonable uh, group that you've... I mean, maybe yeah. at a Russell Brand gig, <laughs> it might go the opposite way. I'm all not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that sort of thing... So one of my friends had said... Um, I don't think there's a single woman coming out of your show that doesn't feel better about herself coming out than she did when going in. You think, well, that's great. That's a happy byproduct. I want everybody to just have a bloody good laugh. But if that's a thing that can also happen, that's incredible to just make people feel great. Oh, absolutely. So uh, are you doing that? Because, I mean, obviously in the old days, you know, you would, you know, men would be, be made to feel good at the expense of the women who were sitting next to them or that, you know, I mean, I'm yeah. just using that as a very plain example. Yeah. But how do you address it in a way where you're like, I'm going to make all the women feel good in the room, but also like, you know, make a show that makes everybody feel good in oh, the yeah. room? I think it's just by being honest about what happens to women. So honest about um bodily functions and about relationships and and it's trying to say things on stage that aren't necessarily really said on stage and not being it's not I don't think it's controversial and people think oh it's really rude and you talk about your fanny a lot and all these things they think yeah but it's just stuff I don't think it's rude Mm. because it's just stuff that happens to me that I I feel like is this just me and then the audience laugh and I think oh no it's not just me and by so them laughing at me makes me feel normal but then me saying it at all makes them feel normal so it's kind of helping everybody and it's very rarely at the detriment of 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 men it's you know sometimes i'll sort of paint my husband in a certain light but it's because he is quite um logical and methodical and it's painting him in a very just light because it's exactly what he's like so he is much more likely to tell me a fact than to be particularly effusively emotional and that's kind of one of the reasons i love him because it's what he's like and he's brilliant but it does mean that when I say things in the audience, it might well be that they have a similar relationship or they can laugh 
sort of along. But I don't think, I don't ever think the men, this, men still come. And I think they wouldn't come if they felt like they were going to be slagged off. And I'm not saying like men are like this and women are like this. No, well, that's what I mean. Yeah. In that comedy has evolved a yeah. great deal Completely. from that traditional mm. idea that, you know, some, that if you are for one sort of thing, you ex, you then exclude another group of your audience. Yes. So I guess what, what I'm interested in is, you know, you, and you kind of half expressed it anyway, but that sort of philosophy of what it is that you're actually trying to mm. create. I like, think because well, I started, so let me tell you about Standard Issue. So I started Standard Issue as a magazine. I hate women's magazines. I, I don't think they're as bad here when I've seen them compared to the UK. They're all about pulling women apart. They're circling cellulite on women who are on holiday for fuck's sake just fuck off and it really boiled my piss for so long and I did the odd joke about it like I had a line about why would I ever buy a magazine where the only time I ever see anybody who looks like me is underneath the word before and that's so this sort of thing and it would start to get a bit of traction and and then I decided to see if I could set up an online women's magazine so we had standard issue magazine and it ran for a, a short a year and a half maybe maybe two years and it was successful in terms of a lot of people liked it and read it, but we couldn't get um, any sponsorship or any advertiser or anything to help us fund it because all the things that we didn't want to talk about, when you should wear white jeans, what colour lipstick's best if you're fat, uh, <laughs> all this sort of rubbish, this surface crap that we, most women don't give a shit about, uh, is what the advertisers want you to because they want they want to be able to advertise white jeans or they want to be able to advertise lipstick. Well, so we ab- didn't talk about those things. Ab- absolutely, I mean, at the heart of capitalism, you know, and advertising, you know, is the poetry of capitalism, as they say. You know, at the heart of that advertising capitalism world is the idea that you can never be happy. Capitalism yeah. and advertising don't want you yeah. to be happy. And it's they promise they're going to make you happy, that they're going to solve your problem. Mm. But at the end of the day, if they actually solve your problem. That's terrible for their business yeah. because they can't sell you the thing that will make you happier yeah. and the thing that will make you happier. So if you're telling people to be happy with, you know, wearing white jeans on this day or happy with, you know, the way they're eyelashes, for them to there's sell. nothing for them to yeah. sell. And I think it's when you really bluntly look uh, sort of critically at a women's magazine and see that it says, oh, this is rubbish about you. And then you turn the page and then there's a thing that says, but we can help it, make it better. And that's an advert for something that you're supposed to buy that won't make the thing, won't make you, because it's all up here where you're happy. It doesn't matter what you look like. So we set up the magazine. We couldn't get the advertising. And instead of just closing it down, I thought, I wonder if we can uh, sort of cut our cloth accordingly. We made it into a podcast. So then it became, so now the podcast has been going for over a year now. And we've had like over, uh, I think we've had like 400,000. Oh, no, it's more than that. We've had more than a million now. I'm not really, we've got three women who run it and they're excellent. And they do the whole thing, the whole podcast. And it's absolutely wonderful. And the, the main thing about it is that we never make women feel like shit. And we still get advertising because podcasts work in a different way. Because podcasts, they work on how many people are listening and the kind of people that are listening. But it's not always necessarily about making people feel like shit and then repairing it. So the podcast is a very different model, much much more successful. It's going great guns. So that became when I write stand-up and I write about my experiences and I hope that women in the audience have experienced the same. Sometimes at new material gigs you find it's just you <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't somebody else. Okay, understood. Let's not do that again ever again. But when you, it, there's always an undercurrent of making, lifting women up. So, and not... Because there's so much in this in in general media that is slapping women down, 
If you look at men's magazines, men's magazines are like, you're so strong, look how brave you are, you could lift a car up. Uh, and women's <laughs> magazines are just look at the fucking state of you. That's what women's magazines are to me. So having the podcast always kind of knowing that one of the I've, one of the things that I do is is something that lifts women up it kind of feeds into everything else I do as well so I'm doing a radio four panel series soon where it's all women and one man so and that's you know it's the opposite of what all panel shows are and panel shows in the UK it's very different here panel shows in the UK have to now have a quarter they have to have one woman on and everybody knows there's a quota, which is the thing that should never have been made public. So now that woman is vilified because people are like, well, she's only there because she's on ticking the box when she's probably there because she's fucking great. So everything I do now is a place where I encourage women. So um, two of my support acts are women. My tour manager's a woman. And it's just, I think, because I used to work in the civil service in an office surrounded by women. And then I went into comedy and I was surrounded by men. And I love men. And men are, you know, great company. And I, backstage, I think comics are comics. I don't think there's a gender really specific. I think you're, I'm a comic before I'm a woman. I feel like it's that ingrained in me. So what what I like to do is kind of encourage in little tiny little industries of women so that I have just a, a nice place where I'm surrounded by awesome women but also it's that kind of not pulling the ladder up behind you to go like if I have a, a, a female comic support me then she gets a few more fans and then maybe she can come back and do her own show and, and the, so I think the standard issue has really informed how I work and how I everything I do on stage there's, there's always a little eye towards is this making people feel better or is this making people feel like shit I am a, a white straight man in my mid forties, so I mean, obviously, as the most discriminated against category of our <laughs> civilization. Um, How are no, you coping? I know. It's, well, you know what? It's been a good run, but it feels like it's getting a little wobbly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. enjoy like, it while it's there. Feels, it feels like I might have seen the best of it. <laughs> feels like it, it was nice to be here for the for the end of it. Being, I mean, it's been. From when time started up until now, it's been a pretty good time for people like me. But it's starting to get a little wobbly. Well, but yeah, but it shouldn't though, because that's no, also that's also prejudice. You know, you can't not you can't exclude white men because then you're then you're back to where you were. You know, it's, I still think mm. it's just a you want a level playing ground. Also, you, as a, even in a joking way, I, I don't even like that joke of you know things were better for men in the mm. in the old days because that relies on the assumption that you think it's better when you have more rights and more opportunities and more yeah, than other that's people, a good point, which I don't. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think it was better in the olden days. I, I think it's better now, and I hope it's going to keep getting well, because better. Because uh, what most feminists want is equality. It's not for women to be better, for women to get everything. It's just a, a bloody good go at it. We just want the same opportunities. That's all it is. Same yeah. opportunities as men. So... Um, but it's interesting how much of that, you know, what we've come to understand as being termed privilege, that idea of how when you are the privileged person in a society, mm. how little you notice it. Like yeah. it's taken, you know, it's, I, I often describe privilege as, you know, a gentle breeze behind your back. You know, you, oh. don't, you don't quite know that, you know, like everyone yeah. else is kind of walking into the breeze and you're, you know, walking with it. You yes. don't quite notice it. Now, once you notice it, you can't help but notice yeah. it. But there's a lot of your time. When did you first notice that so many messages in our society were telling women that they were terrible? Um, Twitter. Yeah. 
Because that is literally so many messages telling me that I'm terrible. Yeah. Not so much now. Maybe because there's functions where you can kind of remove certain words. So, you know, I wish there wasn't general conversation as well. <laughs> you could just say, don't don't use the word unfunny anywhere near me, please. Right. <laughs> You're allowed to say it, not your cup of tea. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> but don't say it. Oh, one of those things shit. where you replace words in documents? Yeah. Where you just like replace unfunny with not your cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. just right. Oh, brilliant. Just oh, change fine. it to yeah. brilliant. If you're going to do yeah. it, push it all the way. It's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> What sort of terrible ego you have where you're just like, don't change it to brilliant, change it to not my cup of tea. Yeah, yeah. all right. <laughs> it's all right. Um, I think... Um, but did you grow up, like, you know, were you at high school, you know, like having an awareness that, you know, no, these messages you were no, getting were unhealthy all. messages? No, no. And even just the kind of, you know, that you have to wear makeup and all of these things I was absolutely on board with. I thought this was just the way the world is. I hadn't questioned anything. And then I sort of read a few books. I read Catelyn Moran's How to Be a Woman. Mm-hmm. I read Tina Fey's Bossy Pants. And I just had a little run of a few books where I thought, oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> and this was quite, even probably quite quite old, because mm-hmm. it's not been out that long, those books. So I think there was uh, slight flags before that, but I hadn't really paid much attention to them. And then that was where I started to think, oh, actually, I think this is quite sexist. To the point where now, because I'm a proper asshole, I call people out. So I did a radio interview not long ago. And he said various things to me and pointed, talked about my breasts on a radio interview <laughs> and looked at them while he was talking to them, which obviously nobody knew. So I said it out loud, <laughs> like, oh, well, just, you know, when you mention them, you don't have to look at them. And it was the only <laughs> or, interview. Or just not mention them. <laughs> well, I would have yeah, thought yeah. would have been a good place to start. <laughs> the only interview I did all day that wasn't live, annoyingly. And it, they cut it out, cut it all out. But I thought, no, but I still stuck up for myself. I still didn't, I think old me would have gone, it's really uncomfortable, like quietly to myself and then left and kind of bitched about it. When now I just went, no, 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 you can't say that to me. No, don't, you can't say that. And I would be calling out. And I think that's the difference. I think it's always been there, but women are, women are, I think as you get older, you become aware of these things. But I think women are just taking less shit now because it's a safety in numbers thing. So it was, it's not one woman shouting out like, oh, I think we should, can we vote? <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think Jenny's under something here. I like, I like the way you think, Jenny. But I think now it's all, like all women are just calling people out on bad behaviour. And I think that's what makes it turn around. I think that's the kind of power of the sort of the movement, I suppose, is that you can't, you can't just expect people to change. You have to point out errors and point out how, hey, if you did this, this would be better for us. And if you did this, you know. But I think... Um, it was mostly so women's magazines i think i used to i used to buy my guy monthly mm-hmm. and i used to buy half a pound of minty sweets and sit and go flick through all the um, this is what i did when i didn't have a boyfriend <laughs> and i'd flick through all the fo- you remember photo stories all the photo stories where there was just you know she didn't have a boyfriend in there by the end she did <laughs> oh well, someday constantly eating sweets while i was doing this lying on my bed thinking someday i'll have a boyfriend and it didn't I think they weren't as damaging then. I think it's a tabloid culture now yeah, that absolutely. it's a it's a celebrity it's an interesting celebrity where you wouldn't have photo stories in magazines these days unless they had celebrities in them. They were just like yeah. actors and models and you know whatever they were. So but you would you could argue that you know publications like the Daily Mail and those sort of things have mm. become the modern. Yes, they're using celebrities, but there is 
fictitious and mean spirited and misleading. Oh, yeah. And well, just are- the language, though. Like, um, so when I got married, we kept it very private, uh, obviously. Uh, and he then, wasn't uh, even invited, right? <laughs> no, it's just me on my <laughs> yeah. own with my my gas monthly <laughs> and my mint imperials. <laughs> I'm not married. I've never had a boyfriend. <laughs> I have so many fillings. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I've been married my whole life just to two different men. Um, but I, uh, I a magazine printed on the front page. Like s- something like secrets of Sarah Millican's. No, it was like behind the scenes of Sarah Millican's secret wedding. Oh, awesome! And, and I just shut my pants because I was mm. like, "How the fuck have they got anything?" And then, so one of the girls in my agent's office, I sort of sent them a message, said, "Do you know anything about this?" And they said, "I'm running out now. I'm going to go and buy it." And it was just a photograph of Gary and I at the Comedy Awards, which we'd posed for a few years ago, so that people had a go-to photograph if they needed to print something in a newspaper when we were like dressed up. And it was the tweet that I posted to say that we'd got married. And that was there behind the scenes. of. And also, it's the term secret. Uh, somebody really flagged this up to me a few years ago. Every time you see the word secret in a magazine or a tabloid newspaper, just replace it with the word private. Mm. <laughs> oh, private wedding, secret wedding, secret baby, private yeah. baby. <laughs> secret relationship, private relationship. And also, like, women don't have legs. They have pins. And they're not wearing a skirt. They flaunt in their pins. And all of this, it's so destructive, but it's it's the public's fault. So because the public like it, so the public read it. So therefore it sells papers and therefore it continues. Yeah, I know, Look, but there, it is a symbiotic relationship. If yeah. it isn't there in the first place, yeah. the public won't access it. Like the, the media often use that argument of going, well, this is the thing they're clicking on and this is the thing. Yes, it is. But in the same way as that we have, you know, in us, like if there's a whole bunch of, you know, sugar on the table, you know, like there's a bit of us evolutionary wise that needs to eat the sugar and has that. So if they're feeding <laughs> like a bit our, of me, all of me. Yeah. Well, I was, I was being polite to us both. But <laughs> <laughs> it is in us and it's the same thing that social media has done to us, which is mm. that dopamine sort of, they've constructed it in a way that keeps us wanting to go back to us. Yes. Now, Yes, we have some responsibility there. And yes, we can drive past the fast food restaurant. Or yes, we can turn off Twitter or Facebook and stop yeah. checking it. But they have also been designed to attract us and lure and us to be in. Easy. And to Yes, exactly. The easier option. So um, I am very interested in that what you said about privacy. Because mm. I, you, you are certainly someone who at least has an idea that not everything about your life needs to be for public no, consumption. If it's funny, it probably goes in, if so, I'm honest. Well, this is what I think is interesting, is this idea that y- you would come across as being a very open, confessional comedian because you do share you know, yeah. a lot about your life through yeah. your comedy. But you clearly also go, that doesn't mean that you have the right to yeah. know everything about my life. So in this show, there I mention a thing, a newspaper did an article about how I'd, they'd, they'd seen a couple of photographs, they compared them, and they worked out that I'd lost loads of weight, and none of it was true. Mm. And it's interesting, when you read an article in a newspaper and you think, I bet that's not true. I knew that wasn't true. I knew that was pure fabrication and it was fascinating to just, because you always wonder, but I actually knew 100% that is not true. But when I started to tell the story at the beginning of the tour, I'd say, um, oh, I don't get the newspapers very much, which is a good thing because I'm a very private person. And then I'd go on to tell the story. And I had to start to run that on 
because sometimes people would laugh at me saying that I was a private person and it's not a joke and it's factually accurate but they think because I talk about Fanny on stage or because I talk about sex or that that means I'm not private to the point where I got really annoyed one night (laughs) this is so unprofessional but (laughs) I like being in control and I don't like it when I'm not in control and I said a very private person and they laughed and I and I was really because they really laughed it wasn't just a few people it was a room laugh and I said are you laughing because you don't think I'm private Mm. and they sort of cheered yes and I said give us a woo if you've ever seen a wedding photo silence there you go carried on right and it was quite a cocky thing to do but I knew that I'd been married twice and nobody's ever seen a wedding photo that's the privacy the private when I got married and we announced it uh uh, people were, when are we going to see the wedding photos? Because they're so used to people sharing their wedding photos. wouldn't dream of sharing my wedding photos. My wedding photos are for us. And I think people don't understand the kind of distance between that, that there is a gap between talking about bodily functions and saying, you know, talking about poo and periods and all these things, but also saying, you know what, there is some stuff that's not for you. That's I have to keep for me, otherwise I would go mad. It's not uh, normal. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we uh, got this little room because we were going to have 45 minutes and we've managed to do 50 already. So <laughs> uh, the good news is that we've still got a, a little bit of time up yeah. our sleeve and I have a couple more questions that I compulsory have to ask on the podcast. There's some standards that, that come I up. I like so that you make out like you're, you're not in charge. <laughs> I am absolutely in charge. And I have to ask these questions. So often, everything that I think, all the rules to this podcast are all self-imposed. Yeah, totally. And then I get mad at myself when I don't follow them. And often, because I actually don't read a lot of feedback about the podcast, but I always have this voice in my head that's the internal critic who's imagining the worst. Like it's always like, uh, you know, uh, uh, a lot of people say that I talk too much i don't know if they do like <laughs> thanks for all the messages about the yeah. podcast i don't even know if i've had any yeah. they might not even publish this i'm not really sure do you find that when you're your own boss that's not always necessarily a good thing i'm no. my own boss although i sort of see that every single audience member is kind of my boss as well i've got like a million little bosses but i think i'm my own boss and sometimes i'm a proper asshole to mm. myself oh yeah like i don't i don't give myself enough time off i don't sort of pat myself mm. on the back when i've done well i'm i mean like I, if i was my boss mm. like a separate person a terrible boss i would be an awful person you make person. you take your work home <laughs> Like often you can't like switch off at the end of the day because your boss is working you so hard. You've got to be yeah, on. Well, we talked you're about out every night. I, I mean, that's a terrible thing for a boss to make God. you do. You have to travel all the time. When we talked about briefly about workaholism, sort of, yes. you know, it being a detrimental part of it. Um, I so I have gaps between tours. Usually, it, oddly, it seems to be about a year and a, a year and three months. And usually the first three months are off and then I get cracking. And so in between the last, the this tour and the last tour, I wrote a book in that gap, like an idiot. And, but I had, a, I worked out how many words I had to do every day to meet my deadline. And then if I completed those words, this is how much of a workaholic I am. If I completed those amount of words, by the time my husband left for his tour show, I was allowed to go with him and do five minutes on stage. <laughs> I rewarded myself by doing well at my job by doing more work. Yeah. I'll, go, I'll, I'll go and do five too. Not then, even the glamorous bit. I'm going to reward myself. I didn't get paid for the five. Sometimes I got paid in like a dinner. Like no. I'd get like a beef bourguignon at the backstage at the gig or a fish and chips or something. But I reward because because I think start, being on stage is so integral. Like if do you if you ever have a gap or you haven't worked for a few months or a, even a few weeks over Christmas or 
do you go a bit I go a bit twitchy if I'm not on stage so up regularly. until up until now up until this last year I would say absolutely right. and there probably was never in the first 20 21 years of me doing this that I went anywhere more than I would have never gone more than somewhere between a month and six weeks without doing it, you know, a yeah. show yeah and if I got anywhere in that zone I would feel like I was absolutely and I wondered because you know this year I'm doing like my 24th show or something like because wow. you know, I do one every year yeah of course and there's a part of me that starts to think am I on again a self-imposed treadmill because nobody's making yeah. me do these shows I make me do these shows yeah I decide it's another year I should do another show <laughs> you because say yes yeah it's what I've always done <laughs> yeah but there's no reason that it has to be what I've always done so this year during the year because I had some other things on I decided I would do bigger shows but fewer shows right which meant that there was one point where I went nearly three months without doing the show. I did quite a big period through the festivals early in yeah. the year. And then I put all the rest of my shows in the second half of the year. Right. But it meant that I did the Opera House, like two shows that night, after three months off. And I quite liked it. Like, you know, ordinarily in the past, I would have been like, oh, this is a disaster. You, yeah. can't, you can't walk out and do the show without having done it. But, I mean, it was a show that I knew very well. Yeah. And in some ways, I think it was actually better because I was, you know, a bit more in it. You know, I was in because the moment, you, yeah. rediscovering it a bit. Exactly. And, and that's of, kind of because I had seven weeks off mm. over Christmas and then came here and I love my show again. Not that I didn't love it before, but it was getting a bit, it did it 200 times. And now I'm like reminding myself of how funny bits are and little bits I love to say. And so, yeah, I think it is quite beneficial. But I just wondered if you were like that kind of twitchy. And that's why, because when I was writing the book, I couldn't do gigs because I didn't have anything new. I wasn't trying out new material. I wasn't doing shows. But to, to get in the car and like <laughs> drive with my husband to like <laughs> Cardiff or Glasgow or wherever and do five minutes after his support before he went on. Just five minutes. And the audience were like, oh, oh, okay. Because they often don't know that we're married as well. So I think they just think she's well, just turned Well, that's because of all your secrets. Because <laughs> you keep everything a secret. That's why. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. But five, that five minutes, and that was like a little reset button. I felt all right again. I just feel sometimes like I climb the wall if I don't get What's on stage. What's the difference? Because I have not. Well, actually, I have occasionally. I know when Sarah Silverman came out, I did support for her. And, like, occasionally, they, you know, I get to do someone else's yeah, you know, show. Yeah. But but most of the time, like, you know, when you're playing those sort of shows, you're doing your own show. Yeah. Um, what's the difference in mindset, you know, in, like, how it feels? I mean, obviously, the length is a very different thing. But what's yes. the difference in just actually how it feels to perform between doing your own show and, like, doing a spot in a show like your husband's show? Yeah, well, because he had a support act as well. So yeah. I felt zero pressure because it doesn't matter. There'll be some people who'll get excited because they like me and there'll be some people who'll be like, oh, I didn't know he was married to her. I hate <laughs> her. Because that's what happens. So there's an odd... Like, when I walk out in front of my audience... I always think half of them love me and half of them have been brought by the person who loves me. And that's what makes me keep working and working because what you want is for those people who've been brought, the husband, the wife, the friend, the auntie, to then come back of their own accord next time and maybe bring a friend. That's what you want. You want to, you know, add more fans. But when I do five minutes, it's literally all for me. <laughs> it's not for them. They've, they're getting a support. They're getting a full show. doesn't matter if they don't like it. Obviously, I want it to go well because, you know, there's a, I don't want it. There's an interval before Gary comes back on. So <laughs> if there is a stink, it will clear the room. But I think it's so much less pressure. And that's why I love new material gigs. But also, I don't like new material gigs because I don't know I'm going to be on. So if I do a spot at a new material gig that exists, 
I don't want them to put me on first. Like, I don't, sorry, I don't want them to announce me really early so that that sells out and they have a lot of pressure and they are expecting me to be excellent when I might be adequate. But equally, I don't want them to not announce me at all because when they say special guest, and now we've got a special guest, mm. we're very lucky to have but as yep. soon as they say her they're like no because they're like it's not Ross Noble mm. or Eddie Izzard <laughs> it's, who, it's the main. Russell Howard they're the three that they want <laughs> I am well aware of where I am in the Beckon order <laughs> but if I announce my, so if I do there's a, one at the Manchester Comedy Store on a, a Sunday night every few weeks called New Stuff and if I do that I announce myself on Twitter at like four o'clock because then you get a few people in but equally I just think they can get their faces straight if they don't like me <laughs> just know that I'm going to be on and get your faces straight because I'm so used to now only performing to my audience and you're spoiled because they all think you're great or they all suspect you're great or they hope that you're great whereas if you do a gig in like a charity gig or anything where there's you know multiple acts on and it's a mixed audience there's a good chance which you never have when you first start off that some of them hate you when you first start off they're so ambivalent towards you and you win them over or you don't win them over but when you're established and known you come out and there's some people who clap excitedly and then there's some people who you can see on their faces they're like ah shit might go for a wee now (laughs) what was it like i remember distinctly the first because it was like I, i remember doing television here reasonably early on and it was kind of it must have been either early days of the internet, certainly before, you know, because I mean, Twitter and Facebook, all these things have been around for 15 years. So it yes. was previous to that, you yeah. know. So this sort of day-to-day immediate feedback that is now so prevalent and yeah. expected and we've kind of just accepted into our worlds, everything meant a little bit more. So if like a nasty comment came your way or whatever, and I remember distinctly the first time that I realised not that somebody didn't know me, not that somebody didn't care for me or whatever, right. but that somebody actually hated me. <laughs> a stranger, you know, literally a person that I'd never met before who didn't know me in any way had seen me do something and and hated me. But why? Well, see, this is what I don't understand. People don't hate bands as much as they hate comics, I think. And I think, I don't know, this is just a theory, that it's because if you're in a room and everybody around you is laughing and you're not, you feel... Like you've been let down. Yeah. Like you're not getting something that other people are getting and you're mad at the person who's delivering. Also because left out of the joke. Yeah. Like it's a group, yeah. you know, like the, the laughter is an acceptance that everybody's it's sort of on the same thing. Yeah, totally. page. And if you're not laughing... You're made to feel, maybe you feel stupid yeah. or maybe you left feel out, left out. Or you're out. the butt of the yeah. joke. And I think that's why, because yeah. you never get people... I suppose some people do have people, some, you know, musicians do have people mm. who hate them. But I... I don't know if they send them a message to say, I hate you. You're, maybe they do. Maybe I need to be a musician for a while and realise, oh no, people hate me as a musician as well I mean, on my recorder. <laughs> I think that comedy is very subjective, obviously, yeah. and very personal. Yeah. And, you know, I think that probably also, if you're just talking about music versus comedy, if you said, I mean, who's the equivalent of like, uh, you know, okay, so say Seinfeld is Coldplay. Right, right? yeah, you know, got it, or yeah. Or two or something, yeah. right? There are people who hate you too and hate Coldplay. But if you got 10 people and you said, who loves Seinfeld? You probably get like two people going, I love his stand-up. And like four people going, I like this TV show. And then a whole bunch of people going, I can't stand him, right? Right. Whereas there'd be, I think like the odds for music is be like, you'd have the people who love them. You have a couple who hate them. But then there'd be in that middle bit. There'd be a whole bunch of people going, oh, yeah, if a U2 song comes yeah. on or if a Coldplay comes oh, on. I wouldn't go to a concert, it? but I like, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. I do think that comedy does divide a little bit more. Um, all right, so 
Um, the funniest one, yes. and you mentioned this, but I don't need to hear this because what you're trying to do, as you said, is like you've got that person there who's not convinced yet and you're trying to convince them, mm. right? You would like them to, you know, change their mind or yeah, be open to Yeah, they've taken a like, punt. Right. Then they don't hate me, no. but they've come along with somebody out of interest. Here's what I don't want to hear from anymore, and this is just a public notice to anybody who's listening. <laughs> if you are one of those people who wasn't a fan of mine or didn't really like me, but you've come to something and you've really liked it, Despite how much you think it's a really nice thing to write me, <laughs> to me, that you used to hate me and now you like me because of that thing, I just don't want to hear it. Just tell me that you like... You would never say that to a person in real life, though, right. would you? Like, oh, you always used to get on my tits, but yeah. now I don't really mind you. Like, you would never... Can you imagine saying that to somebody who works beside in an office? That would be so appalling. And, and, but also thinking it's a compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, thanks so much. Oh, oh, I get people who say, um, oh, my mum loves you. And I think, oh, you're not keen. <laughs> But, but just like maybe, just may, maybe this needs to be lessons and compliments. Right. Maybe before you join Twitter, you need to be <laughs> run through just a, a little, very brief, brief online course where you get taught what is and isn't a compliment, and then you can just ditch the other kind. Uh, I ask on this podcast about um, oh, so we were t- we stumbled on a work, work being a workaholic. Yeah. So, uh, have you had times where that has? gone too far where you yeah. just genuinely had to go I'm doing too much I'm yeah. working too hard I've been burnt out definitely twice maybe more where I just my brain is swimmy I can't concentrate on anything I'm exhausted and I just have to take things out of my diary we have to go that doesn't happen that doesn't happen is that contract being signed no that's gone and it's I've got a really good agent who is very understanding of that thank god um because I know how far I can work, but I don't seem to know the line. And I often push myself a bit further, partly because of not wanting to let people down, partly because of certainly never wanting to let fans down. Um, so if it was a telly record and a show, I'd keep the show and I'd get rid of the telly record. Because you flatter yourself that you're the one person that they want for that telly record when really you're on a list of 200 and you're number 47. <laughs> and they just go, oh, she can't do it. Okay, let's ask number 48, 49. <laughs> but, you know, so you're, whereas the show, it is just you. And I don't ever want to let my fans down as much as I possibly can avoid that. But it is, uh, I find it, I'm getting, I think I'm getting better at it. So I've got proper time off coming up, like proper time off, which I'm a little bit worried about. I was going to say, what do you do in your time off? Like, because if you're someone who work, like gets a lot of, yeah. you know, your enjoyment in life out of the process of working and then actually doing the work. Yeah. Like, what do you do when you genuinely have some time off? I'm, I don't know. <laughs> so I've had, I have had a couple of periods of three or four months off where I haven't, I've sort of caught up with friends and I've read books and I've travelled a little and I don't really like the word travelled. I've gone on holidays is what I mean because travelled, one of my friends walked across Spain. I still don't really know why. Um, but I, I've got a year off coming up and I don't, I'm a bit worried but I'm quite excited by what that'll, what that'll mean and I'm not allowed, I'm not allowing myself to do anything in that anything. year off, no. If I think of a funny thought, I can write it down because right. I think that's it's silly to not because you're just been in material, potential material. But yeah, I'm having proper time off and I just need to, I think 
sometimes when you realise what all you're writing about is, oh, you know when you're in a hotel, or you know when you're on the road, and no, they don't, they don't, they go on, a, audiences go in a hotel once or twice a year if they're lucky, if they go on holiday, and no, they don't spend that amount of hours in a car, so no, they don't understand these things. So I think I kind of need to live a bit sometimes. So it's Henry Rollins has this thing that uh, Andrew O'Neill uh, told me about, which is an inhale and an exhale year. So he has an inhale year where he, uh, this is Henry Rollins, where he reads and looks at art and goes to plays and watches films. And then he has an exhale year where he produces yeah. stuff. And I think that's uh, just, I think that's so smart, realising that you have to top up the tank yeah. sometimes. You can't just be const- constantly sort of sending stuff out and not bringing stuff in at the same time. Well, certainly to move forward and mm. develop. Because, yeah. you know, if you, like you said, if you only write what you've always known, then yeah. you eventually just start repeating yourself as yeah. well. You've got and to I have just, new experiences. I always want my shows to be better than everything should always be better than the last one because I should be better because I should have I've done it three more years since till the next tour so I should always be better but in order to generate more material you have to live a bit you have to see your friends you have to have conversations you have to you know read books and you know and you know go for nice walks and all of the normal stuff that people might do on a weekend but we don't really do that because we work weekends so I think I need to kind of, you top up the tank and then off you go again. And I love it. I absolutely adore touring. I wouldn't do it if I didn't love it so much because it is, you know, it's a, it's a big commitment. But I think in order to kind of, I need like a little reset button to then go, oh, I love this again. Because I think if I toured constantly, I think that's not healthy either. I was worried about, you know, do you, have, do you know anybody who just doesn't like going home? I was worried about that. When you say, you know, comics are doing a weekend club and you know they live an hour and a half away and you know they drive and they're like I'm going to stay in the hotel and you're like why are you staying in the hotel what's the matter with you why do you go at home and I love being at home so I think the main thing I want to do in my year off is just be at home oh yeah no I, I mean that's my fear is I would never leave the house <laughs> like I would have a year off and people would be like where's Will and I would have never left my house <laughs> that is a worry isn't it Especially now you can get food delivered. Oh, I mean, no reason, apart from walking the dogs. And to be honest, I've got a nice house now. I could probably just walk them from one end to the other and they'd still be fine. Just in the garden. A couple of ways in the garden, back in again. My my little dog doesn't like the snow at all. And a friend of mine showed me a video of a dog romping through the snow. And and my friend was looking after my dog and she said, yeah, I took him to the park. He wasn't feeling it, so I brought him home. (laughs) Just doesn't like cold paws. It's very opposite of a lot of dogs. But it suits me quite well though because you know he doesn't like yeah. having adventures I didn't want to go either. to the park in the snow either so this has worked out well for both of us exactly <laughs> um, so uh, there's just a couple of uh, quick questions yes. that I want to ask and then uh, we will finish up but uh, uh, do you have an overall okay well this is a question can just be summed up I'll ask you it directly yeah what's what what do you think that life is about what is the what is the meaning of life do you have a guiding spiritual belief were you raised in some sort of believing no. there's I guess it's, you know, what do you think happens when you die? Okay, they're two separate questions. Well, they are, but they're interconnected. Uh, well, not for me. Uh, okay, what good. You think, Even better. What you think when you have, what, what, what I think happens when you die is I think you just get cremated or you get buried and then you're done. Uh-huh. I don't, I'd love to think there was more uh, when people I love have died and will die. I'm very jealous of religious people that they think they're going to see them again and how wonderful that would be, but it just isn't there. I just don't see it. Um, what I think life is about is a different thing. I think the trick or the kind of the key to life is to find something you're good at and that you love 
and kind of trick people into paying you to do it. <laughs> I genuinely think that's it. I had so many jobs that I didn't like. I worked really hard at them because I've always been a grafter, but I didn't like them. And as soon as I found stand-up, I was desperate to try and find a way of like, is there a way that this could be my job? Mm. And I think that's what it is. I think that's the difference between people who love their jobs and people who don't. And it's, I don't believe that kind of rubbish about if you love your job, you never work a day in your life. Lazy sods. No. Yeah. <laughs> I work every fucking day. I mean, harder. <laughs> yeah. As we said. Because you don't clock off. Right. Because you don't have that. When I used to work in an office. And you don't have I'd that thing of going, fuck the boss. Yeah. Let's just go and have coffee. Who <laughs> cares about this yeah. asshole? She's a bitch. Right. <laughs> but if I, when I had an office job, I clocked out, I went home, I had a life. You know, not not a great one, but <laughs> it, was, it was there. Yeah. Um, but now it's really hard to not work because I love it so much. But I do understand, like I've got all the social media apps in my phone under in a little um, a folder that says work because I don't think they work. And I just keep thinking, ah, I'm just digging about and having fun. And you think, no, 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 that's where your fans are. That's where you post about stuff. That's, that's work. It's definitely work. And the kind of delineation between what is work and what isn't work is much harder when you love your job. But I love my job. So you can't really argue because it's awesome. It's uh, the best job in the world. Is there a misconception about you, do you think, from people? Um, I, that all I eat is cake. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I would be dead. <laughs> like, I definitely eat fruit and vegetables. I have uh, carbs. I have all of the food groups. Uh, and <laughs> How much cake are you eating? I, you know, I eat How biscuits eat more cake? than cake, okay. if I'm honest. What's your favourite biscuit? Uh, I, well, we've, I love a Tim Tam. Okay. I love a Tim Tam. And what I love about Tim Tams is they're very similar to a chocolate penguin mm. in the UK. Yep. But penguins are individually wrapped, which says to yourself, you have one of those, mm-hmm. and then you're done. Tim Tams are in a packet where you can go, you can have four of these with a cup of tea. No, th- no, Tim Tams are individually wrapped. The serving size is 11. <laughs> <laughs> I love this country. I love your country. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay, a misconception. And the other thing was, how do you feel about the idea of, so is there a moment in your life where you would, love to have have it, have it over and be able to do it again or do you believe that everything that has happened in your life has led to you to where you are now like is there a moment that you would love to go back to and go i, I wish i had my time again or no. do you not live no like that? because i don't live like that and also i think everything i every decision i've made everything i've said has been what i felt was right at the time and who is future sarah to argue with past sarah I love it. You've been so great. Thank oh, you so much for doing this. That was so much this. fun. I'm glad we uh, got a little bit extra time. Me uh, too. And I'm not even sw- as sweaty as I thought I'd be because there's no, no way I can't. me neither. I was like <laughs> I really thought thinking, I'd be like in a pool of it by now. <laughs> yeah, I really did think that as well. I was a bit sus at the start. I was like, I was glad I bought this water. I've been trying not to buy bottled water. Like again, just, you know. But it's just hard sometimes when there's no water machines and you take your little, you know, your, your proper bottle that you bought. That's, right. you know, and yeah. But I thought it'd be weird to just have my bottle and we yeah. shared it. Maybe <laughs> yeah. two straws. But also sometimes I've got a proper bottle and sometimes I find the neck just spells. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm really trying to do the right thing for the environment. Is but this minty? Ne- is this minty on purpose? <laughs> Why does the neck smell like bins sometimes? <laughs> I think I may need to wash it more often. So, it shouldn't. It's got water in it. It's, isn't it self-washing? <laughs> exactly. Every time I shake it in my bag, it's That's technically it's being washed. Washing. Why does it smell of bins? <laughs> 
um, <laughs> there is a scene in the uh, again this is such a weird uh, but anyway I went to see with a friend of mine the Aquaman movie oh yeah and uh, there is a, a comedic scene in it where uh, they are underwater in the ocean and uh, then uh, he Aquaman mm-hmm. uh, he smells himself and realises he has bad BO and it's all I can think about about that movie which I did not enjoy <laughs> that movie anyway but I'm just like I don't understand is he like he's in the ocean surely he's like washed as soon as from... he sweats, it comes into the sea. Right, surely. Yeah. Right? He's been constantly washed by salt how water. How smelly do you have to be if you still smell when you're underwater right. all the time? But also, he's surrounded by fish and fish people. <laughs> and fish is like what normally we think is smelly. So I'm not even sure his idea of what is smelly yeah. is smelly. Maybe anyway. it's clean. Maybe his version of what smelly is is clean. Okay. Maybe he smells too much like deodorant. Right. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. And you know what alarms me most is I've seen that film and I do not remember that bit because I had a lovely nap in the middle. Yeah, well, <laughs> that is the best way to watch that movie <laughs> by far. You probably enjoyed it a lot more than me. It was I much didn't shorter. Get, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't feel refreshed at the end. I felt drained and confused. A little bit of drool. <laughs> so, um, all right, uh, plugs. Let's do plugs. I'll do plugs at the start as well, but we do plugs at the end so that oh. I, you know, yeah, am yeah. reminded of what to say at the start, basically. So when does it go out, depending on what we can plug? Oh, well, just let's plug everything okay. and then just like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, you're in Australia at the moment. It won't yes. go out for your Melbourne show, so it won't, it won't go out in time for that. But um, do you have other places where there are tickets uh, left as well? Yeah. So, there's a Brisbane matinee. There's tickets left for that. And also, what I think both of the Perth dates have some tickets. The second one more than the first. Okay. But Adelaide and Sydney uh, are both sold out. And then I go to Europe and then I go to Canada. And uh, Standard Issue is my podcast. Let's plug that. Uh, which book? is What about the book? Uh, the book has been out a year and a bit. It's an autobiography called uh, How to Be Champion. And it's because uh, it's really odd when people ask to write, do you want to write an autobiography and you're 43 and you think, ah, am I old enough? So I made it a kind of self-help book as well. So each chapter is about me and about something that happened to me. And then I give some tips on if that's happened to you, how you could deal with it. Because nice. I'm all about sort of moving forward and getting better and improving. Uh, where do people uh, find your work if they want to uh, like, you know, watch you do stand up but they can't come to one of your shows? Uh, well, there's, so there's DVDs which I guess people have probably put on YouTube. I don't know. No. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that. But <laughs> but if you still have a DVD player, you can buy a DVD. Oh, you can get them as downloads as well right. for the futuristic people. Yes, good. Okay. They are yeah. available as yeah. downloads. And also my social media, we put clips up all the time of my social, uh, of my, of my like, And what shows. is your social media? Where do we uh, find you? I am the Sarah Millican on Instagram, Sarah Millican 75 on Twitter and Sarah Millican on Facebook. And I've decided I'm not learning anymore. So when the new one comes out, I'm not going to learn it. Yeah. No, I <laughs> 43, think that's don't care. That's a very wise thing <laughs> no to more, do. No more, I'm done. <laughs> uh, I am currently, well, I'm not currently on tour, but I will be on tour. Uh, March the 8th, I start in Hobart. Uh, the show is called Will Informed. Melbourne International Comedy Festival and uh, the rest of the country and overseas dates to come. They will be, um, you know, on my website once they're all announced. Will you ever run out of words that you can put Will in? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I have a list. Because I'm, I unlike you. Have you done Will Advised? Uh, Will Advised is on the list. Uh, I have a list of about forty more, and I certainly don't have forty more shows left in me. Some of them I'll probably never get to. You know, fuck, yeah. fuck Mary Will, which I like as a name, isn't good on posters. It's no. hard to advertise. There's a few that come along every now and again where I'm like, oh, that's pretty funny. I think. At one stage, I was like, oh, I think Mentally Will would be a good name for a show, but I feel like times have moved forward a bit, and now I can't. 
I feel like I might have missed my window where I could have done a show called Mentally Will. Um, So there's a a few that I won't make, but um, uh, no, I won't run out. And because unlike you, you wonderful professional who um, likes to have some of your show actually in the can before you start selling it to people, I have the complete other business model, which is somebody calls me in July every year and goes, what's your show next year called while I'm in the middle of my last tour? And I pluck a name out of but the list got, of names 40, that I have. list of 40 that I just, you've already got. I do. I just go through Number and I go. 29 this year. Yeah, here we go. But also the difference is a different model because it's a different, an entirely different model because I don't do a different show every year. Mm-hmm. Yes. But so, I but I then, my, my I have the, what I was going to say is if I didn't, put on a show until I had a show, I don't think that I would get a show. Yeah. yeah. Because I don't think that I would ever get to the point where I felt like this is good enough to show people. Whereas I do the opposite, which right. is like I put it on sale and as soon as people like buy tickets to it, I'm like, shit, now I'm going to have to do it. But that's now why I'm like with a new good. material gig. I put the new material gig and I don't have anything and I write for the new material yeah. gig. So I'm just doing it in a smaller way. But you're, that's quite a scary way. But you've got it. It's Everybody has a different way of writing. If that's what works for you, it's clearly worked for so many shows so far. And another 40 shows, that's what you just yeah, said. Another we're 40, do. <laughs> I guarantee. <laughs> yeah. That's my guarantee. If you've listened this far, if you've made it. We will get mentally well. <laughs> Well, I think once I am, then it's fine. Then yeah. I can use the show. I we just, all are a little bit, you oh, know yeah, that. It's good, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> imagine if I had that in brackets on today's mentally will. We all are a little bit. Let's be honest. Come on, guys. Come on. Not offensive, because we all are. We all a bit. are, of course. A little bit, at least. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. This has been a delight. Oh, thank you.